Hi, everybody, and welcome to a special 100th episode celebration of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 193 countries. How about that? I'm Robert Miller, your host. I started this podcast in March 2021 during the depths of the pandemic. As you know by now, I've been a musician my whole life. At that time in 2021, it was impossible as a musician to perform or record or even to rehearse. So I put all my creative energies into the podcast. I'm pleased to say that the podcast has grown and developed magnificently since then. I've had so many famous musicians and others as guests, in particular, a number of musicians who were my heroes as I was coming of age musically in the 60s and 70s. While technically I released my 100th episode a few weeks ago, I wanted to pause at this point and celebrate that milestone by putting together a kind of montage episode featuring 10 of the great musicians who I've interviewed that I've chosen more or less randomly. I've taken excerpts from their episodes to create this celebration episode. I invite you to listen to the full episodes and also to all of my other episodes. And don't forget all the bonus music episodes and special episodes that I've released as well from time to time. And keep in mind that I feature a song of mine in every episode, underneath the introduction and at the end. And I always try to make the song relevant somehow. For this special episode, I've chosen the first song that I ever wrote and recorded, called Cakewalk for Deborah. I wrote this song back in the 1970s for my then-girlfriend, and I was smart and lucky enough to marry her afterwards, and we're still together to this day. Okay, so here goes. John Lodge of the Moody Blues is an international star. He's written many memorable songs, including Ride My Seesaw and I'm Just a Singer in a Rock and Roll Band. I asked him whether he ever thought back then that his music would last over 50 years. Here's what he said. Can you believe that you're still doing this after like 50 years? Isn't that amazing? <laughs> well, I remember when I said to my friends when I was uh, 19, this is what I wanted to do. And they said, what are you going to do when you're 21? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. I think there's a famous quote from Ringo Starr, who was asked what he was going to do when the Beatles faded away. And I think he was going to open up some kind of a, a hair salon or something like that. <laughs> I wonder how he's doing with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I remember when we when we started just before Data Future Fest, we the five of us said, "What do we want to achieve?" And not a dream, not a dream, no hypotheticals. What do we want to achieve? And we said, it would be fantastic if the songs we wrote now lasted 20 years, you know? And here we are 50 odd years later. So 
I think we achieved that. You achieved your goal. Absolutely. Good for you. Mark Farner was the guitarist and frontman for Grand Funk Railroad, one of the biggest and greatest bands of the rock era. His band sold out Shea Stadium in New York, and I asked Mark about that event. I got to ask you about one in particular, because I know you played Shea Stadium. Oh, yeah. And, and I'm a New York boy. OK. And, you know, when I think of Shea Stadium, there's only one band that I'm thinking of. And it's the Beatles, of course. But you guys did even better than the Beatles, didn't you? Oh, we sold it out quicker. It took uh, 72 hours or 71 hours. Uh, somebody corrected me the other day. But uh, they, you had to go right there to the ticket office, Robert. There was no online sales. So right. <laughs> 55,000 people uh, showed up at Shea Stadium ticket office to buy tickets. And a lot of them camped out overnight that first night. And when they woke up in the morning, uh, they, the, the uh, tents were all pitched on the lawn and what have you. There was people all over the place. And I'll never forget it because, you know, that this was big time. And it was in the New York papers. These kids actually camped out to go see this band. And it was a big deal, man. That's amazing. Joe Bouchard is one of the original members of Blue Oyster Cult, a band that had several big hits, including Don't Fear the Reaper, which famously was parodied on Saturday Night Live in the hilarious More Cowbell sketch featuring Will Ferrell and guest host Christopher Walken. I asked Joe how the band got the name Blue Oyster Cult. You know, Blue Oyster Cult was one of those famous names that nobody understood, okay? And I read something about, like, tell me if this is true, a former manager came up with the idea, and it's something about aliens landing on the yes. Earth. We were is the aliens. Right? We are the aliens that came to Earth to change the course of history. These aliens would like show up at all of these junctures and important points. This is our, our manager, Sandy's um, shtick. Huh? Yeah, definitely. And he wrote what was the oyster about. I didn't get that point. You know, I don't know. I didn't. I, in fact, back then, I didn't even like oysters. <laughs> now I love them. From his name, I don't even think he could eat shellfish, okay? <laughs> right, right, exactly. But, uh, you know, we, we were arguing because we knew we'd, we'd been signed by, just about to sign the contract, and we didn't have a name because we weren't going to use the old name. We said, we got to we come up with a fresh name for the band. And we, we argued about all these stupid names. So none of them were any good, but you never know because names are, are strange, you know. Right. So we locked our two managers, Sandy and his buddy Murray, in a room and said, don't come out until you, until you have the name. And whatever it is, we agree right now that whatever it is, that's what we'll do. <laughs> so they, they were only in the room for about a minute. They came out and said, we got it. It's going to be Blue Oyster Cult. We went, what? Blue Oyster? What? <laughs> Blue Oyster Cult? Joey D was one of the biggest stars of the early 60s with his massive hit, The Peppermint Twist. He had many famous musicians come through his band called the Starlighters, including an unknown guitarist named Maurice James. 
who later changed his name to Jimi Hendrix. Listen to Joey tell the story. So uh, I went and I asked my drummer if he knew anybody. His name was Jimmy Mays. Uh, and he had worked with the Shirelles and, and the Marvelettes. And uh, so all quality people, all stars. And I said, I need a guitar player, Jimmy. He said, you know what? I just heard this dude that's in New York City right now. He just got off the road with the Isley Brothers and Little Richard. I said, he's got to be the goods. He's got to be the real deal. So I was living in Lodi, New Jersey at the time. And I said, Jimmy, I'll have my uh, nephew, Johnny, and you drive to the city, pick him up, and bring him to my house in Lodi, and I'll, I'll audition him. This happens. They pick up Jimmy at this St. James Hotel, which is on 45th Street, a real roach rat infested dive. <laughs> but that's what we had to contend with back yep, then. Yep. Everybody was trying to make it, and you had to put up with this. So he comes uh, to my house. He didn't even have a case for his guitar. He had a bandana around his head, a real cool dude. And uh, he comes into the house. I welcomed him. I said, uh, what's your name? He said, Maurice James. I said, uh, welcome to my home. I said, uh, we'll go in my garage now. He had a little amplifier. must have been 12 by 12 by 12, a real tiny one. Yeah. And plugged his guitar in it was a jazz master Fender at the time. And he said, what would you like me to play? And I said, no, just the opposite. I want you to play what you like. So he started playing Curtis Mayfield and I'm an R&B guy. Uh -huh. So once he, I started hearing that, I said, oh man, that's fantastic. I said, you got the gig. Detroit's Ted Nugent is known as the Motor City Madman. He's had an incredible career. I asked the madman about the importance of Detroit in the history of rock and roll. And here's what he had to say. At your core, you're a Detroit guy, right? Have you noticed that I am the Motor City Madman? I'm the only one who qualifies. I got to tell you, we could talk forever, Robert, about the spirit and the energy and the, the middle finger on fire grinding <laughs> rhythm and blues epicenter that is Detroit, going back to Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels, everything Motown. I mean, genuflect at the altar of the Motown Funk Brothers, the incredible spirit and the, uh, the musical authority that I was showered with, wallpaper, carpet bomb, musicality every day of my life. And every musician you will ever talk to, you bring up Detroit, and they will tell you the unbelievable, immeasurable influence that all things Detroit, especially in their essence, the Motown Funk Brothers, the songwriting. But going back to Mitch Ride and the Detroit Wheels, that's why there was an Amboy Dukes and a Grand Funk Railroad and an MC5 and a Brownsville Station and a Bob Seger. Mitch Ryder and his band really established a bar of energy and musical cohesiveness and a, and a spirit to the music that was influenced by all those black heroes of ours. Felix Cavalieri was the heart and soul of the Rascals, one of the greatest groups of the 60s, with so many hits, including Good Lovin' and Groovin'. Felix, who was a starlighter himself at one point, talked about putting the rascals together. And as Joey told you, I was working in, he had a nightclub in New York for a brief time called the Starlighter. And I was working there with three other guys, two of them, which became rascals, Eddie Brigatti and Gene Cornish. 
the drummer I found through a, a lady that I was seeing at the time who took me to see this, this fantastic musician called Dino Donnelli uh, at the place called the Metropole. And um, I said, man, this is, this is the guy. So, you know, uh, it worked out well because, you know, he, the drummer that we had uh, didn't want to take a chance because this was all speculation, obviously. So I was able to put the band together. And, and the good thing is that within six months, we had a record, which is unheard of today. But I'm saying within six months. You had an album or you had the single? No, we had a record deal contract. Oh, a record deal. Yeah. I, I mean, so in other words, we started. And, you know, I'm very proud of that band because everybody was pretty good, you know? Oh, yeah. And, 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 and so I, I, I felt that I was making the right decisions in the people that I was choosing, you know, because a lot, a lot of bands have one person in the band that really it stands out. We had four people that stood out. We had four people, exception of Eddie. Eddie was a little young to have his own band, but he was certainly a talent. We had four people that people would look at and zero in on on stage. Gene Cornish had his band, came from Rochester, New York, and uh, he came to New York to make it, you know, and then he hit, you know, what, what happens in New York when the reality hits that, you know, your band's not quite up to the level. Eddie's brother was part of Joey D's band, his brother, David. So Eddie was a phenomenal singer. Dino was, was just so exciting to watch on the drums. You know, and and so, you know, I was real proud to have people like this with me, you know. Dennis Tufano was the original voice of the Buckinghams, a great American band that had a string of hits, including Hey Baby, They're Playing Our Song and Mercy, 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 all during the British invasion era of the 60s. Dennis told me this story about the band appearing on the Smothers Brothers television show. We did the Smothers Brothers show. We walked into the studio and uh, Tommy Smothers came out and was so excited to have us on the show. And he said, oh, we're, we love your music and we're so happy you got to be on the show. And we said, look, we're big fans of yours. We're happy to be on the show too. And he goes, well, where's your accent? We don't have accents. <laughs> we said, yeah. We said, yeah, we have Chicago <laughs> accents. You know, it's like, what do you mean? He goes, we thought you were English. And they had a set built that was gigantic of all Union Jack, all Union Jack flags, all British flags. And it was like, and he said, oh my God, we're gonna have to change the set. We said, no, no, don't bother with that. It's a gigantic set. We, we got to shoot this thing later this afternoon. And he says, okay, he says, thank you. And uh, of course, they don't interview you on that show. So nobody ever heard us speak. They just heard us singing. And we looked behind the, in front of the Union Jack flags, we looked like English band. And America was introduced to that brand new English act, okay, called the Buckinghams. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's great. Patrick Myers is Freddie Mercury in the incredible Queen tribute band, Killer Queen. He told me the story behind their first show back in 1993. Going back to our first show, that this huge thing called London University, has got, it's got loads of colleges dotted out all over, stretching out all across London. And there's this one central college in the middle called London Yulu. Uh, and they threw this huge ball that's for everybody. 
and that's what all of London's come together and can't congregate at this ball. And they put on someone like Oasis or Pulp or, or Blur or the big UK Brit pop bands at the time. Or, or Nirvana, or whoever's touring, or the Pixies. You know, that that's that's the level of band that would um, that would uh, beget this show. And for some reason, that one year when we were just dressed up waiting for a show, um, they forgot to en- renew their entertainment license. They just <laughs> slipped their mind, so they couldn't put on a band. But they weren't. The Camden Council wouldn't allow them. And they said, "Oh, this is so embarrassing. We've got this big ball coming in. We've got nothing. What are we going to do? Play a disco for four hours? What do we?" Someone slipped them a photo because we've been taking photographs of me in the laundry room. Actually, it was a photograph of me in the laundry room playing the piano, dressed Doing up your trousers, Mercury, <laughs> cleaning my trousers. I was dressed up with le- with latex and not latex, uh, leotards and whatever, you know. And uh, I looked, I looked quite the picture. And this crazy little photograph got somehow landed on the guy who's going to try and solve this problem's desk. And he went, "Oh!" And even then, with this crazy photograph of me playing a piano in a laundry room, he thought. Well, that's got potential. <laughs> so, so, so uh, she gets in touch with me and rings me up and uh, and um, she says, "Do you want to do you want to headline a, the university ball with all the colleges and play in front of a, a thousand and so people?" And I said, "That sounds interesting, but no, because uh, that sounded terrifying." I thought, <laughs> "Oh no!" And he says, "No, come to dinner." He actually took this me was going to be your first gig, first gig ever. And he said, "He said, come out for lunch." And I don't know why he invited me to lunch because we'd never met. Um, and I said, okay, I think he must have been that desperate to sort of bag something. But we got on really well. And and by the end of the lunch, I thought, I'm going to back myself. You know, I think you have to at some point decide. This is why I find your story so fascinating. You know, you, you, right. am I going to do it or not? Am I going to do this? You know, and I thought, well, look, he explained to me the circumstances. And I thought, There's no, this is so weird. There's no way that would happen twice. I'm I'm ready as I'm ever going to be. And if I let this slip through my fingers, I might as well not have bothered at all. So um, I'm, I'm going to do it. And, and But I, you are absolutely right. I didn't know how it would go down. I thought we might get booed the moment we walked on stage because Freddie means a lot to people. It right. means a lot and to you us. You weren't Freddie. And we're not Freddie. And it's presumptuous to try and be. Um, and, and also it was raw. It was 1993. It, felt, it, it all felt awfully raw uh, yeah. still. So, and also... Tributes were beginning to get the idea. The thing about tributes was they were beginning to become a joke thing. They were just emerging as we were doing it, but a lot of people were doing it ironically. And I thought, I don't want us to be like tediously earnest, but because Queen had a sense of humour about them, you know, sure. I want us, I want us to be entertaining, and I want us to have the same sort of humour that Queen conveyed. But I don't want us to seem like we're taking the Mickey either, you know, because uh, that would irritate me, and that would be like getting it utterly wrong. So and pointlessly so. So. I didn't. I just didn't know where the audience would get that, you know, and get where we were coming from. So, what was the reaction? So, I was terrified. They went through the roof. Elliot Randall is a world famous guitarist who played the unforgettable solos in Steely Dan's big hit "Reeling in the Years." Elliot told me this great story about that recording session. So we we ran it through once, and. Everybody's jaw dropped because I, I seem to have hit exactly the right solo. And Gary Katz, the producer, says, All right, can we hear that back? And the, the poor assistant engineer says, Oh, I didn't record it. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like, That's the first okay, rule let's... of recording hit the record button. Brian Highland had two monster hits in the early 60s including the novelty song Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weeny 
yellow polka dot bikini. He was a teenager working at the Brill Building in New York City at that time. And I asked him how he came to sing this song. Here's what he said. So you're 16 years old. They come to you and they say, we've got this little novelty song called Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weeny Yellow Polka Dot Bikini. You can't forget right. that name, by the way. Right. And, uh, why did they come to you? Why not somebody else? I, I don't know. I, I never asked them that question. And I just went up. They played the song for me on the demo. And they said, OK, the demo was a couple of girls singing it. And they said, oh, you're going to sing this part. Then you're going to do this part with the girls background singers. Then there's a spoken part. And then that's it. And we they they set up the session very quickly, did it probably about a week later at uh, Regent Sound Studios. And it was a deal where everybody was in the studio at the same time. And I could look to my right and I could see the three girls singing the background singers. And we had really good musicians and they knocked it out in probably they did it was a three hour session they knocked uh, that out and another couple of songs and uh, it's just I think the writers also were there too Paul Vance and Lee Pockers you know in a sense it's kind of funny because they got this song it's a novelty song and they're saying to themselves probably okay who do we get to sing this and somebody says wait a minute the office boy we'll get him to sing this song okay and you turned it into a gigantic hit oops i just realized that all of the excerpts so far were male musicians so i've got to add a female musician and I've chosen the extraordinary classical crossover singer, Georgia Fumanti. In addition to being a world-class singer, Georgia is a proud mother of four. I asked her if her children are impressed with her as a singer. So I'm wondering, are your kids impressed with you as a singer or do they just think of you as mom? Uh, it's funny because they see me on stage and I bring them on stage with me when I can, but then they see the mom every day. So I think they see like two, two, two part of me, the mom, uh, very simple at home, and then the singer on stage. But I have three girls and the little one is a boy. And also they play with me with beautiful dresses and we pretend to be all princesses. And <laughs> it's fun. It's a, a very privileged time with me for me to bring my girls and to have them this memory, to be in front of an audience and to, to feel the love there is on stage. So there it is. Excerpts from 11 great musician interviews that I did on the podcast in the first hundred episodes. I invite you all to go to the podcast website at followyourdreampodcast.com to listen to these and all the other great episodes. And if you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a nice review as well. It really helps. I want to thank you for listening to this special episode and we'll see you all in the next episode. And now let's listen again to the song that began this episode, my song called Cakewalk for Deborah.